Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we usually slow walk passage by passage through Dante's masterwork comedy. But this is a different kind of episode. This is one of the interpolated episodes that gives some background information on comedy. And this is an episode all about demons. What else could it be about? Here we are down in the Malabolja. We have seen demons whipping figures along. We've seen a bunch of demons boil out from under a bridge. And we might as well talk about demons and comedy and how they work. So let's get going and start it off with the medieval debates. There were various theories about demons that were hotly debated in the Middle Ages. And without descending too far into the arguments, let me just say that the questions are, A, are demons tormentors or are they tempters? What is it that they do to humans? In other words, do they prong us and fork us and hurt us? Do they lance our boils? Or do they tempt us toward sin? That is, put a beautiful woman or man in our path to tempt us to adultery. The question is, tormentors or tempters? And the second big debate question is, corporeal or not? That is, whether they take up space or not. This is the same question about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And it is an important question. Believe me, I know it's used in the modern world to mean something of insignificance, a question that we're all debating that's insignificant, but it's not. How many angels can dance on the head of the pin is really important. And the answer, as I've told you already before, is one or infinity. Those are the possible answers because the question being asked is, do angels take up space? Do they have mass? If they take up space, then only one angel, a little, 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 tiny angel, could dance on a pin. If they don't take up space and they don't have mass and in Aristotelian terms, don't have width, length, and depth, then infinity can dance on the head of a pin. It doesn't matter, two, seven, nine, 427, 9,623. It doesn't matter how many because they don't take up any space, so they can all fit on there. Dante seems to come down on the side of, in the first debate, tormentors. As we will see in comedy, his demons are almost always tormentors of some sort. They are not tempters, and that seems to align him with a certain kind of Augustinian tradition, which sees Satan, we'll talk about that in a minute, Satan or Lucifer as the primary tempter, and the demons as just kind of run-of-the-mill tormentors. And as you already know, Dante comes down on the side of corporeal. They have to be corporeal because they're holding whips, they're holding prongs, those prongs have to hurt, they have to be able to hurt not only the damned souls, but the real in the flesh pilgrim walking along. This is all a corporeal, a bodily, a physical reality. Let's move on and talk about something else. There are two ways to think about demons in the Middle Ages, theologically and folklorically. These two ways play out inside of comedy. The theological 
demons are going to exist here. That is the fallen angels who chose to go with Satan and rebel against God. And we have seen them already. I said a while ago in a past podcast that those demons weren't very well described. They were just described as fallen angels. And someone beautifully pointed out to me, thank you, on Twitter, that at Canto 14, line 44, they are described as hard by Dante. When Dante remembers them, the pilgrim recalls them and brings them back to Virgil's mind. Remember when we were stopped, he refers to those demons as duro, as hard. So they are given one adjective there. I'll, it's a great correction, and I'll take it. But I still say they're not totally visualized. We saw them a little clearer at the first of the Malabolgia with the horns whipping the seducers and the pimps along. And now here in the fifth Malabolgia, and subsequently there are going to be more, we're going to see them much more clearly. Now we see them with wings. We see them light on their feet because their wings are kind of bat-like. We're going to see them doing all kinds of things, holding pitchforks or prongs or forks. These are all these fallen angels of some type, and they all function as a kind of, uh, what do we want to say, a nasty tormentor capable of poking you (laughs) right in the butt according to the last passage we were on in Dante. We should note here that there are those neutral angels. Remember the circle of the neutrals way up before Limbo, way up there? Remember that there are angels up there who are neither good nor bad. They neither rebelled against God nor stayed with God, but stayed neutral. And they're with all the other neutrals up there, the people who couldn't ever decide those are up there. There is some theological evidence for it, not in terms of the Bible, but uh, but in terms of certain church fathers. But that's a larger issue that uh, probably is beyond the confines of us. Right now, we're just talking about the fallen ones and the ones we see. And we've seen some theological ones, but we've also, and this is what's curious about Dante, we've also seen folkloric ones. Remember the squanderers with the suicides, the people who economically committed suicide, they squandered all their property. And remember, they're in that wood in which the suicides have been changed into gross, hideous, bare, ruined trees. Oh, bare, ruined. Sounds Shakespearean. Bare, ruined trees. (laughs) Remember that? And the, the squanderers come crashing through the underbrush and they're being chased by dogs. And they're eventually ripped apart, and they rip one of the suicides partially apart, one of the bushes. Those are the demons out of medieval folklore. They are, I mean, you'd have to say that there are dogs in hell, and maybe, but really what that is, is a long tradition of folkloric, demonic creatures that arise in the forest, the fear of wolves. Those are the kind of demons that are everywhere, you know, they, they, they just kind of lurk under your beds. Uh, these kind of demons in medieval folklore often become funny. They're the comedic slapstick characters in medieval plays and street fairs. Interestingly, in Dante, we see demons as a fusion of the theological traditions and the folkloric old school traditions of these kind of malevolent forces at work out of fairy tales. Interesting that 
Dante combines them, we're going to see more and more a tradition of demons later on down in Inferno. We're going to learn that demons actually argue over souls of the dead. This is a little bit strange given the whole Minos judgment, Acheron, Karen bit, but apparently, in some cases at least, Demons argue with angels over the souls of dead people. And in one case, we're going to see that a demon is able to keep a body alive up on earth while its soul falls into hell. Yes, Dante anticipated zombies. All of that ahead, all of that to say that demons become increasingly important in comedy. And let's think about that for a second. To think about that, we have to think about Satan, the big rebellious archangel. There's a passage in Isaiah that many of the church fathers quoted. It's in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. I won't quote it here, but I'll just say that the church fathers used this passage to say something about Satan. He's the rebellious archangel who tried to climb too high, the bright morning star who tried to rival God and fell and fell all the way down to in Hebrew Sheol or the grave, the pit where the corpse is thrown. That passage is used to indicate the fall of Satan itself. The passage is probably in Isaiah about temporal rulers who strive too high and fall. It's probably out of a very old Assyrian and Babylonian tradition of reaching too high and falling low. But the church fathers use it to indicate the position of this re rebellious archangel, Satan, who falls. You'll notice, having said all of that, so far you haven't seen Satan. If you've read comedy, you know the answer to this. But if you haven't read comedy, you might stop and think for a minute, wait a minute, we're in hell, the kingdom of Satan. Where is he? You might have probably expected him up there where Minos was, you know, judging the damned, putting them in their place. It seems maybe Satan should have been there. If you don't know Inferno, you eventually have to come to wonder where old Lucifer is. Well, just wait and <laughs> you won't be disappointed. You'll just be surprised. But it is strange that we have walked through 21 cantos of Inferno and we haven't laid eyes on Satan yet, but we're increasingly laying eyes on his demons. And let's talk about the words that Dante uses for demons. Dante uses two terms. He uses demonio and diavolo, and he uses them pretty interchangeably in the Florentine. It would be as if I used the word demon and devil to describe these figures. And pretty interchangeably, Dante throws these words around demonio and diavolo. There are some scholars who make grand pronouncements about the use of the two terms demonio and diavolo. But as far as I can see in my amateur gaze, it seems that these words are used interchangeably with one large exception, and that is most of the mythological monsters in Inferno, like Charon with his boat and like Minos with his judging tail, are described as demonio, demons. It, so it, the mythological monsters, by and large, are given this designation of demons. And we may be developing a point here that will ultimately play out in Milton and Paradise Lost and on down the line. That is, uh, you have Satan, the 
leader of it all. And then you have kind of Satan's, uh, what do I want to say, generals, his his top military brass. And that would be like Minos and Charon. And then beyond that, you just have the run-of-the-mill devils that go around tormenting people on earth and in hell. And the ranking, the military ranking of them may be nascent in Dante, given that the mythological creatures are always identified as demonio, but still nonetheless, it's just an inchoate idea sitting down there at the bottom of comedy. One great example, sitting down there at the bottom, for example, is Cerberus. If you go all the way back to Canto 6, line 32, you'll see Cerberus there defined as demonio, or given the designation demonio. And again, this may be a nascent inchoate strategy to create what will ultimately come in at least Christian folkloric tradition, the militaristic arrangement of the underworld. It's, it's kind of back behind Dante, but it may not be as expressed as the theological versus folkloric devils. And it's important to see Dante weave theology into folklore over and over again. One last point. St. Augustine thought that the pagan gods were demons. Augustine had no question that all those pagan gods, name them, Athena, Pluto, Jupiter, all of them, name them, that they were all demons in various forms that had led humans astray and tormented them into unbelief. However, by the 12th and 13th centuries, um, Christian theologians had started to consider the pagan gods shadows of the one true God. This is incredibly important to Dante because, for example, Jupiter, the lead god particularly, is seen in comedy as a shadow or a prevision of the Christian God. Remember Capaneus stretched out on the sands amongst the blasphemers? I remember that whole bit I did for you about why is Capaneus condemned for blasphemy when who he is blaspheming is Jupiter, not the Christian God. Well, there may be more to that, and we have to kind of wait till the Purgatorio for this to make more sense. We'll see Dante trying to make more of it in the Purgatorio, but but there may be a way in which particularly Jupiter is a prevision or a early concept of the Christian God and a kind of stand in in the pagan mind. And the pagan mind is able to understand that there is the one true God in a Christian sense but doesn't really see the full revelation. That, I think, is important to what happens to the demons in comedy because the demons are themselves a out of mythology, Cerberus, for example, in that passage in Canto 6 that I pointed you to, and also these kind of comedic, slapsticky tormentors in Cantos 21, 22, and 23. They're kind of a weaving together of various traditions and strains. We do see pagan gods, Minos, Cerberus, Charon. We do see them in demonic lights, and yet Jupiter may be sectioned off and given his own, what do we want to say, terroir, in which he is a prevision of the one true God. All of this says that the concept of demons is under advisement in the Middle Ages. It's being created around comedy, and Dante is part of the creation of this. 
our notion of demons, our popular notion of them, that even arise in video games. It comes a lot from Dante. Dante is developing this kind of weird fusion of a theological and folkloric creature who lives under your bed, pokes you with forks, jumps out from behind blind corners, and yet at the same time he's under the thrall and command of a larger evil force. Dante's kind of fusing that all up together. You can see it in, today even, in, as I say, in video games, in fantasy novels. Dante's kind of part of this giant stream that is creating our modern notion of what demons are. And that demons arise in Inferno. And by this, I mean that they slowly come to our vision. We see them in Dis, we see mythological figures called demons, then we see those folkloric ones, and then we see them more in the Malabolja and more, and we're going to see them more, and they're going to play bigger roles, and in other pockets, they're going to play even bigger roles than they do here. That they're coming onto the scene is ever so interesting about Inferno, because of course, you would know if you wrote a poem about hell, you would expect demons to be there at the very get-go, right at the front, right at the gate, abandon hope, there's a demon. But no, they arise over the course of Inferno and come into focus, because A, Dante may be reserving specific functions to them, and B, Dante may be about more than just the theology of evil. More on that ahead in future podcasts of Walking with Dante. This has been an interpolated episode in which I've kind of talked around what demons are for Dante, how they slowly come into vision and comedy, what they were in his own day in the Middle Ages, what theologically they were, just to give you a background information so that in the next scene, when things really go off the rails in Canto 21 and 22, you'll be ready. So subscribe to this podcast, like it, rate it. I would super appreciate that part and come back next time because there's more ahead. I'm Mark Scarborough and this is Walking with Dante.